It's my pleasure to introduce and a true great schus that he returns to us and is modia us Torah Kadosha of Yosef Einar Shlita. So it's a tremendous uh, nachas to be back. Is the mic uh, too loud, too soft? I hear some uh, reverb. Um, that's not your department. Just, as long as it doesn't affect that. Uh, that's good, not good? Yeah, more than a little. You're being nice. What? Move it. Uh, if it's too low, let me know. And um, a few uh, brief uh, announcements and thank you. First of all, uh, thank you again for setting this up six months in advance of each one. We speak right after Pesach to try to... Perfect. I good? Okay. Thank you. And uh, a lot of work goes into it. And to all the uh, people here who never miss and always are so welcoming. Um, Jay, besides uh, helping me get here on time because I forgot I had to leave time for lights and parking. Uh, we don't have that upstate. Thank you. Uh, so he was uh, nice enough to not only park but bring two heavy boxes in. Uh, just um, we finished Baruch Hashem. We took about a year, a year and a half of a sugya from not long ago of Chukasem Leselechu, which we gave a very abridged version over here, one hakel, and put into safer format. The safer was finished uh, 95% of it three years ago, actually shown to Abchayim. And then the last 5% lost two years in between and finally finished it. So uh, there are copies here uh, outside. You can see uh, Jay afterwards. And we'll welcome the comments. Uh, the part that sounds familiar from what you heard was enlarged and it was picked and chosen first because it's so no gay here in America. And uh, the USBs of those Sherman, the other ones are also available and uh, there's a bag somewhere floating around. And uh, he lives in Flappers, so you can bother him for the next uh, six months. That young man over there gets younger every time I see him. Let's begin. This is quite an important and heavy topic, heavy with uh, life issues going on in the world. And hopefully we'll become lighter as we try to figure out how to deal with it. The title was put, Yesh Baal Adira, in Yani Daiga Pachad Abitachan, Managing Expectations, Dealing with Disappointments, Utilizing the Anchor of Armesera. Sounds like a long title because I don't know if we're going to finish in an hour, but we're going to hopefully show that the Masera is the key to everything, and it's also the key to learning how to really utilize Bitachan. And the general clause is going to be that when you realize how little there is to fear and how to ignore what's supposed to be ignored and just focus on where the amelis really counts, it's already 90% of the work. So we're going to uh, try to tie in what we have hopefully learned from Pesach, Sphere, Shulis, bringing into the summer. I assume that's why Memorial Day was put at this particular point in the calendar. And let's begin with what we just had a few days ago, and that's Shavuos. It's a Gemara Shabbos on Peiches Samad Aleph. Very famous Gemara. These four lines, like many Gemaras that sometimes are well known, but goes unnoticed how important the Yisrael is and how helpful it is. So the Gemara tells Amaisa there was a tzuki. It's bad enough to be a tzuki, Nebuch. Tzuki, Karayim, take whatever ism you want. But they particularly uh, had such a chip on their shoulders that they wanted to show they were more machmer. So they sat in the dark on Shabbos, didn't have chont on Shabbos. There's no reason to torture yourself, and that's not even a former, needless to say. 
But Lashitasam, as they got rid of the old Malchus Shemayim, at the front first, they said, yeah, just we don't have Teresh of Alpeh. Teresh of Iksav, it resulted in a few humors they had to live with. That's how ridiculous the Matzav was. So you would think if a person, Rahmal Aslan, doesn't want to be with the program, so, okay, go do what you want, but uh, why do you have to start up with people? This story, quickly, as we uh, fade into the Matzav, we see it's Stuki somewhere in the best Medrash, or near the best Medrash, and he has nothing better to do to go, instead of playing golf, which might have been a little terror, but more parv, he finds the Gadwadar, Rova, and he utilizes an opportunity to scream at him. So before you start the story, like, why? What for? Get a life. You don't want to do the right thing, so just, just go. And the answer is, Baruch Hashem, there's a Pintaliyan, even a Stuki, and there's a guilt, and feels the need to say something. And what he says, he says loud, and he starts to pick on the main focal point of our entire Messiah. But don't worry, Rava answers in kind, and just a few words tells us the whole Yisoy. That's why I'm starting with this. Hutztuki dechazil Rava dekam ma'ayin b'shmaitza. It's the bottom of Pechas Aleph. And he sees Rava is deep in thought in the sugya. He picture Torah without any Gemaras and Rishayim. sitting in his head and developing the sugya, very deep in thought. Doesn't notice the stuki. Doesn't notice he's sitting on his hands. Doesn't know that his hands are chapped. Doesn't know his hands are bleeding. And we would understand that suddenly of Rava the God and Stuki was uh, going to sugar. Uh, he couldn't uh, witness this. Mind you, he's close enough to either be right outside the window or in the base measures looking for trouble. Really looking for Rukhniyas, but he doesn't know that yet. So he goes over to Rava as he sees he's learning and his hands are bleeding and there's blood dripping. Nothing detrimental to his health, and that's why Rava didn't notice, didn't even feel it. Amalai, so he comes over to Rava, unannounced, unsolicited comments. Amal Paziza. Imagine, Amal Paziza. Now, Rava's in charge of Klai Yisrael. So says, Klai Yisrael is a nation of impetuous people. This took, he's part of them, even though he doesn't want to be. Your mouth went into gear before you even heard what you're getting. As in Nasa Vinishma. Akati Bipatsu Kamaisu. And you're still impetuous, doing things look radical, and you're sitting here, you don't even notice your hands are bleeding. Rafa was very careful with his health. A little blood, chapped hands. Not gonna make a difference when you're learning. But the Stuki's not interested in any real answers. He wants to challenge him on the Nasa Nishma. The Nasa Nishma bothers him because Nasa Nishma means you have a Teres Adibris, you have a finite Teresh Biksav, but the Torah is Teresh about Peh. The Teresh Biksav separate is irrelevant. You can't get it right. So Nasa Nishma, the godless Ecclesiastes, they understood that basic bitachon amuna will dictate that a Baruch Hu wants to help us and create the world and humanity and the amanivcher to be mated, so whatever is in it is good for us and will always be applicable. So we can't possibly hear it all our regalachas anyway, and therefore nasev I'm not trying to say it's a small decision, but that was the godless of Chayzel. They understood all that. The tzedukim, in particular, with the ones that are saying, no, we can't handle anything, we're being asked to do things all the time, and it regulates our whole life. We just want a very finite, limited edition, which we can change it well over the generations. So he's screaming at Rava, Paisal's impetuous, you're leading them, you're still impetuous. Amalai, so Rava looks at him, and he says three words. Anan disaginam bishle musa. Rashi says, It's a lach na'imai bitaim lave, bitachan amuna, tamimus, 
If you have Abbas Hashem, you understand that Hashem has Ava to Kla Yisrael. Samachnu Olav We knew that we were safe in saying Nasr Nishma, because whatever it is, Hashem is being native and it's never something we can't handle. Amazing. First Yisrael in Yisrael, people go through Nisyanis, say Loyalainu, but. Deslin, one of his short pieces, it's even a, put it into a poem that every day is Nisyanis and that's what we're here for. It pushes us to grow. And it doesn't say this, but it's obvious the day you have where you're late morning, early afternoon, by leaving already, and you think didn't have any Nisyanis today, you should check your pulse because it could be dangerous. Don't ask for any more. But if you didn't notice any, that means you're not trying hard enough and every time you raise the Kudus HaBechira, this is classic Rav Dessler, so it creates new Nisyanis on the new level and that's what we're looking to do, not to create Nisyanis, but to raise the level and that will bring with it new opportunities and got to rise to the challenge so Rav has said, nothing we can't handle, we have full bitachin Nasa Benishma is whatever the entire Torah and Avodah Hashem means we invite it because it's here for our own good, for our growth. And therefore, if Amelus Patera means concentrating fully and not noticing what's going on, and there are some chapped hands, Lunu, get the extra scar for that. That speaks to us on many levels because we have so many distractions, we're trying to get distracted from the distractions of the distractions. So, Rava says, you got to throw yourself in, and nothing we can't handle. And if we can't handle it, in reality, it's not an Isayim by definition. Isayim is only something you can pass or fail. Very basic. A lot of people forget it when you're in it. You can't handle it. Don't worry. Try your hardest, and if you can handle it, you get the sky. If you can't handle it, then it wasn't an Isayim in the first place. It's beyond you and beyond the circumstance. But you have to remember one Gemara for Kabbalah Satara and for the rest of the year, I believe that's it. Because the enemies, whether from without or within, are always trying to taina that it's not relevant and not true. They're really saying it looks daunting and therefore we don't want to do it. We'd rather cop out than make up some other story. And they're selling themselves very short and doing a lot of damage because if you don't work hard, you're not going to have sipuk and you're not going to accomplish in any area of life. Ruchnius or Gashmius, which is Ruchnius, if it's applied correctly. I saw Balyabar brought down from the Siddur HaGrod, it's not the Grod itself, it's a parish on it, but he was working in a theme. And we say this every morning, so if you stop somebody in the street, they ask him uh, which bracha, which part of Davin do you have the most kavana for? So, some people might say, I try to have Kavana by everything, that's Kavaldic. Some people might say, what's Kavana? Depending what time you're davening and how quickly you want to finish. And then the rest of us try our best to have Kavana by everything, but we know that you're going to have to try to be super focused in certain areas. So we have the first Pasuk Shema, first Parsha would be nice, we have Shema Nesra, you have the first three Brachas, first Brachas Shema Nesra is Ma'akev, first three Brachas are Reset, you have the very first brach of all the bakashas. You notice placement is everything. Mahabdalal, Fabdalal, we call that top building. The first brach on Shema Nesra is Atachene. There's a reason for that. Without Chachma, you can't focus, you can't figure out. So Chazal said, before you ask for anything, ask for Chachma. The next, if I have to pick, the next part of davening that needs the most kavana. Two parts, same bracha kemat, one's birch satera, which is the only bracha the race according to have to be shainim, and avarabah, which is a pseudo birch satera. You look at avarabah, so just, it's because I remember this, let me just make a note or put a sticky, like slow down before Kriyashima. So people say, I have to slow down for Kriyashima anyway. Okay, so stop putting the brakes on a little bit before. There's a reason this is right before Kriyashima. We'll save that for later if we get there today. If not, remind me in six months. 
But this bracha is the only bracha, it's the only part of tefillah where we invoke and mention rachamim, like we're begging for something over and over again. And that's because it's about Talmud Torah, the same reason Atachen in his first Nishman Esrei, is that everything depends on our attachment to Torah, our learning, our understanding of what we have to do, and deepening our hashkafis and our chizik and amun and bitachen. So the Siddur Agra makes mention of the fact that we start off right away, it's a great Rachmanist. He had Rachmim on us. We'll get to in a moment, points out that the fact that Torah was given to us is Midas HaRachim, and the fact that we can ask for Panasa Mazinus is Midas HaDim, is Hashem created people, He's going to be Mephrindus then. Many Nafkaminas. One is that you should ask for what you need in Gashmias, but don't ask for more because it's coming with Midas HaDim. And he says, that's why in benching we say, When it comes to Ruchnius and Torah, we invoke Rachamim and Shem Hashem. We see the Lush in a few minutes. Right now, Avina Makena Bavur Avasenu Shabbat Chubacha. Salamdeim Chuke Chaim. So we ask, in the schus of our forefathers, who is that we'll discuss in a moment? And they were taught Torah, they were given Torah. Have Rahmanas on us as well and give it to us as well and give us a slach on our learning. And we go on to repeat Avinu of Arachaman of Rachem, Rachem Alena. We don't have Lashans like this anywhere else in Dabin. That shows you how important this is, because without this, you I think you're doing mitzvahs without a deep understanding of Yiddishkeit, it's not gonna last, it's not gonna be maximized. So he asks, just Pashup Shah, what is Avinu Makena Bavu Avasenu Shabatru Bakha? Who are the Avasenu? So I would ask everybody here, what were you thinking this morning? But it's not a fair question because I can ask myself the same question. I just happen to be armed with the Mabakamas. Bhuvasenu, the first guess is always Avram Yisakyaikev, and it's not untrue, but he says that's not what it means over here. Surprisingly. Bhuvasenu is Avasenu at Harsinai. The ones that said Nasavanishma and understood the aside of how important this is. And they had Bitachan, what Robert said, basically. We have Bitachan that Hashem is not giving us something we can't handle, something that's not good for us. And because of that leap of faith, and they said Nasavanishma, that's Chus, you gave them the Torah, Tulam Deim Chuke Chaim, Kain Tachanenu Sulam Deinu. That's he says, the push of shot in the words. Amazing. You can go 30, 40, 50, 60 years and not know that. It's a big schus. That means that Bitochan and Amunah and Nasr are not two different sugyas. And the same Akash Baruch that you trusted that everything you're given, all the mitzvahs, the entire Vedas Hashem, that's the same Akash Baruch that we trust not to get too bent out of shape when we deal with life's challenges because it's all part of the Vedas Hashem and the test is here to push us to do it with more more list and see if we're going to do it anyway. That's how he touches up the Lashon of Avarabba. Tzitzis Yantiv, just some of his Lashon, it's in Brachas, Perigzai, Mishnah, Gimel. Yeshine b'nescha elu brachas u'mizu. Birchas azimun, it says, Elokeinu, birchas ha-teira. As in, Baruchus Hashem, Mubarach, again, Aliyah, birchas ha-teira. Is Hashem, Midas Arachamim. And it says the difference is that Hashem, quote-unquote, Kavyachla, has to feed us. We still have to for it, but ask for what you need, and that's it. When it comes to Torah and Ruchnias, ask for a lot more. It's coming with Midas Arachamim anyway, so there's no limit. Fascinating. Why is this important besides the fact it's crucial just to push us to work harder and not have yish and not get upset when things don't go exactly as planned. Bacha was just telling me last night, he says, you know, he's going out, and uh, people say, that's a shver parasha. It's not more shver or less shver than every other parasha, just that people realize right away, it's a lot at stake over here. I'm trying to get married. And the one I choose, it makes a big nafkamina, is I tell him, you're not choosing her. <laughs> it's not you. Uh, you're going through the motions like everything else in life. Uh, you got to try your hardest, do your ishtadlis. He said, yeah, the most difficult part is if it doesn't go, and what he means by that is if she said no, then I just get down for a couple of weeks, I'm like out of it. 
Understandable, very human. A couple of weeks is a long time. So I was afraid to ask what he meant by out of it. I assume he meant he's still going to Shachar's Milcham Ayrvan time and learning three Sadarm, but it's not the same Seder. Sometimes it's not even that. Because we give ourselves a pass that didn't go exactly as planned. I thought that was the one of Kosh Baruch who apparently disagreed. And therefore I could take two weeks off because I'm down. No tightness, I'm just down. The downtime is pretty important in life. Everybody has it sometimes. Uh, the question is always, how much? And that's where you have to draw on these principles. So the discussion was an interesting discussion. We tried to, tried to pump them up a little bit. Uh, I didn't ask too many questions on, is this the matzah right now? But there was probably a reason why he was bringing it up. And let me begin with... Um, I don't think there's a chiv to say B'Shem Amro for the two things I'm going to quote, so listen carefully. I Dafka looked for this because uh, when you start off with the MS and you know that most of the world is constantly pushing a narrative that's complete Sheker. I'm not sure what to do. I'm not going to talk about that now. There's a klal, Sheker Einla Raglayim. That klal is being challenged. Sheker Einla Raglayim has to be some truth. So that's still a klal. They throw in a couple of nice words that sound good. Um, brotherhood, humanity, whatever. And uh, the rest is sheker muchlut. But it's affecting us and it's seeping in because for decades already, and the last few years, getting worse and worse among many things that got worse and worse. What people don't realize, it's all part of the same agenda. It's not one particular Aveira, whether it be a chiv karis or whether it be something that's murder for Umasalim for us. There are a lot of things going on, but it took a while for me to figure out that it's actually being orchestrated by the same people on the same agenda. And the agenda is to take anything to do with religion, like Baruch Hu, out of the equation. It, the rest is commentary. That's important to know, but people are fighting. Oh, we got this fire to put out that. It's all one fire. It's not, they're just doing it every way they can. One of the most insidious which is in the background and not well known, and the reason I'm talking about it is to give us more comfort to understand how, Baruch Hashem, how thankful we have to be to have terrorist emis, that we don't have to buy into any of this, and that I'm happy to report, as I will show you in a moment, actually some Chachamim who understand the whole thing, Sheker, not because they have such great bitachon, and I don't even know if they're from, most of them are not even Jewish, but they give the answers. Doesn't mean you should get into arguments with people about this. It's for our understanding. So already uh, years ago, I remember, and I'm uh, not very old. I keep getting younger, as you do. Um, I remember as a child, I remember this is like Hak in Shiva and camp. You said, whatever you do, don't use any aerosols. Remember this? You destroy the ozone layer. This, this, this is an example comes to mind before we get into the piece over here. Uh, remember this? Remember, like, the world's coming to an end, that's for sure. question is when. So give Earth another five years to live. Anybody talks like that, that's already a fear. Now, we're, we're very green people. The Pasuk says you've got to not do baltashkas, not destroy cheese, uh, trees and grass, and, and not destroy Hashem's world. So we're into that. The, the, that's the Shaker Shane Lord line. That you say is true. The rest is how extreme you get. We would save a sequoia tree if we could, but we wouldn't kill lumberjacks in the process. That's, all this has been done over the last few days, and that's classic. It's just they have no goalposts, no guide. So it's always a question of how to apply things. So that's the Sheker and the Raglaim. As they start off with some of you say that we would agree on at some level, the question is the hierarchy of importance. So whatever you do, don't use any aerosols, whether that's a big bit on the Haver issue or not. Somebody came up in camp, you know, but Whatever you do, don't do that, it's going to destroy the ozone. So fast forward a few decades, and uh, now the big hawk, as we know, is global warming. I'm not weighing in whether it is getting warmer, it's not getting warmer, that's not a concern. If it's a problem and you can scientifically prove it, then we should do some nominalist shtadlis. But nominalist shtadlis does not mean driving everybody crazy and bringing fear into the equation that it's all up to us and that Hashem is not running the world. That's where the problem begins and ends. So, you wouldn't believe this, but uh, I, I don't really have time to uh, look for things to read, so I have a few people who send me what they think I might want to see and talk about. 
I don't use all of it. Uh, some things are things they want to talk about, but I try to sift through it. So they had a recent meeting uh, for global warming. Chachamim, believe it or not, this line I had to read twice, and my English is not bad. They said they realized that uh, the fix on global warming is not going fast enough. The world is coming to an end. We better do something about it. And therefore, a group of scientists decided that we should take aerosol and all the things that would destroy the ozone layer and spray the entire orbit perimeter of the Earth, and that will save us from destruction. So now they're advocating, after all these years, to use all the aerosols to save the Earth. I have no problem with science and medicine changing their mind. That's not an issue. They admit they were completely wrong on the issue. But in one lifetime, I went for never use aerosols to Mitzvah now to use it to save the earth. That, that, I have no problem with that. The problem is the things being written and the narrative is always the world's coming to an end and it's totally up to us and Rahmanasan is not in the picture and let's just panic every decade about something and whether it's about this or about that, but just just so panic. So that's the introduction to this next thing. The main panic, and this has been going on for about forty years, getting worse, not better, it's part of global warming, but it's again it's not about global warming. It's about whether you want to live your life with B'tachon and Amuna and do your basic shots to figure out what that is, or do you want to take a coach back of the picture and say it's up to us and we're going to build Migdal Bavel and save the whole world and in the process destroy anything that is remotely related to a Tzalem which is what's going on now and has been going on, just getting worse. So, for a sense of history, and that's why this is so important, They've been saying for a long time that the world is running out of resources. That's not a new thing. They just keep raising the volume. Same thing as global warming. It's either going to overheat. We only have a limited amount of time. They have places that built now clocks that count down to the end of the world. And um, I, I, it's, it's a pitiful sight. There's mostly a lot of people walking around extremely nervous about things and you can't really get anything accomplished. Uh, that's real. So... Either we're just going to overheat and blow up, or if that doesn't happen, which they don't think is really shy of, but if that doesn't happen, we're going to run out of food, resources, metals, all the things we need to run society. And they said a simple svara, which I will read part of it inside, it's not a very long piece, that there's only a finite amount of natural resources, and if we keep growing the population, like having children, we're going to have more and more people, and we only have finite resources, so everybody's going to starve unless they burn up first. That's been the theory that's been touted for a while. And, you know, if Rahman I wasn't from, this stuff sounds dangerous. And, of course, their solution, which is not a solution, understand what we're up against. This is Saif Maisa Mashavat Chila. They didn't have these things and have an answer. It's a machama against anything to do with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So they just want to know what the agenda will be. They just look in Chumish and whatever the Pasuk says, they suggest the opposite. That's what's going on here. So no, one of the earliest took him for mankind. They didn't get to Yiddish guy yet. Besides Pruvu, that for us, there's a mitzvah of Sheves. Sheves is to populate the world. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises that you should continue populating the world and growing and growing and growing. And it's a big place. They're psukim, fairish psukim that say this in a number of places. Like in Bereshis, before you get the Shevis. And inherent in these psukim is the obvious guarantee that, that's why I mentioned the Tessie that I promise you, you won't run out of food. Very basic, but most of the world disagrees with everything we're going to say here. So... Hashem made the world, and Hashem's taking care of us, and Hashem keeps saying to Umasalam also, Shevis, populate the world and develop it. And for Klai Israel, every child, millions and millions of mitzvahs. So we have a Chayv Kaddish to continue to build Klai Israel in the best possible way. It's also under attack for the same reason that it's filtering in, Nebuch. So their solution, we're going to run out of resources, have 1.2 children. The 0.2 is very dangerous just from a medical point of view. And 
Therefore, we'll solve the problem because we can't sustain this. We keep raising billions and billions and billions. You should see when they had the last census, uh, what are the top 10 billion? What was the last number? Some amazing number in fulfillment of the Pusik. And they said, now the world's really coming to an end. This is not sustainable because they'll run out of everything. If um, none of this sounds familiar, that's great. That means you're all learning, you haven't tuned into anything. But this is their basic fear-mongering on the first level, and they go from here to scaring everybody else into submission. It's against the fairish apostles, so we know it's not true. Inherent is populate the world, is you'll have what you need. Just make it work. So if Akash is not in the equation, you're going to panic. So what's fascinating is, there was an old Machlekes already when this started, decades ago, and there were some professors, I don't think it's coming from a firm attitude, but they got it right, they said the whole thing is not true. And let me begin with the famous bet. We don't normally talk about betting, is not very yeshivish. Machlekes, Muhammad Amar, it's ever mutter. So um, don't extrapolate from anything we say here about wagers. But this was a gentleman's wager between some very famous economists and professors on this very Shiloh. It's a famous wager between University of Maryland economist Julian Simon and three scholars, meaning against three scholars. Stanford University's biologist Paul Ehrlich, some of these guys, and maybe all of them must be Jewish, these are very smart people. And also we have no problem, but you'll see that the majority already is on the panic side, and they bring their preferred shariahs that is basic math. They've got a finite amount of food materials, and you've got an infinite amount of people keep growing, so what do you expect? Of course the world's going to self-destruct. So they were arguing about the basic metals that we need to run the world and the economy and build infrastructure. Same thing as food. Happens to be later on by food company by the name of Monsanto created genetically modified organisms. Now, if you would land from Mars and not know what that is, you would think there's some very dangerous alien who invaded and you don't know much about Earth, but whatever you do, stay away from GMO because it says it in every single package. That's a very oversimplified story. It's like it's perfect. And people say, the right of the river is, this was charm, they did it for money. Capitalists are not. You can't put billions of dollars in R&D to try to solve the world's food problem, to solve the shortage, and then not expect for the possibility to make a lot of profit. So of course they made a lot of money. Well, they did before the non-GMO people started picketing and burning down their plants. But uh, the GMO modified grain actually probably saved hundreds of millions of people from starvation, which is a good thing. Because they wanted to make it stronger. And they did. This is decades ago. But you wouldn't know that because now everything says, we can assure you, it's not GMO, which means they came up with a great idea and that's a kasha on us because we said the world's coming to an end and then they just solved the world food shortage problem. So we don't want that because that would make us look bad. So we're going to just tell everybody that Anything genetically modified is horrible, and we're going to let the world know. Of course, what they don't let the world know, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into this now. This is a six-hour topic. Um, you're invited on Shabbos afternoon. So we're talking about DNA and kashrus concerns and people concerns and yuchsin, and that's a, it's a sugya. It's a 20-hour sugya. But because the world is controlled by kafirim and liberals and and again, it's not never perfect science, but the argument that Monsanto made a lot of money, <laughs> I hope so, because they wouldn't be pushed. If there's no incentive to spend billions of dollars inventing it, no one's going to do it. That's push it. Economics 101. So, yeah, that's a very bad rap. Uh, what they don't tell you is they did this decades ago, and they're now growing much better wheat and all the chamesh is being a dog on so that we don't run out of food. But all the other great experts up because and said, no, we're going to run out of food and don't convince us otherwise. This is important. This is all the same theory. So he's going to talk about metals, the same thing. We're going to run out of metals. We need metals to build everything we use, from the pushkas to the buildings to the cars. And there's only a finite amount of metals you can pull out of the ground, or so they would love us to think. Just complete sheker based on 
can't say little amuna if you don't have a kosh baruch in the picture you have no amuna so he's against three very famous scholars Paul Ehrlich University of California Berkeley ecologist John Hart University of California Berkeley scientist and future director of Barack Obama's that's Mamashe Hashrash Temple uh, John P. Holdren so three against one already it's not a numbers game because uh, the first fellow Julian Simon happens to be 100% correct as you'll see in a moment and they were arguing for a long time so they made a bet this is something you can figure out. The professors are supposed to be running experiments, right? Wager was based on the inflation-adjusted prices of five metals. They took a basket of five metals that are used all the time to keep planet Earth and the human race running. Chromium, copper, nickel, tin. Four of the five, the fifth one, not as common. And they said, we're going to take a decade now. It's a long experiment. But Baruch Hashem, it was a long time ago, so we have all the results. And the results are not the least bit surprising, at least to somebody who knows about Akash Baruch So they said from 1980 to 1990, they're going to watch these four or five medals. And Ehrlich and company predicted that because of population growth, metals would become scarcer, hence more expensive, and the world's coming to an end. Simon argued that the, listen carefully, if, if I speak too quickly when I read this, please let me know, raise your hand. It's for continuing credits in economics and in metals and other sciences. Simon argued that because of population growth, metals will become cheaper. He's a thousand percent right, the sentence makes no sense to the untrained deer. They thought he was crazy. Does it become cheaper? We'd be happy if we don't run out tomorrow. So on paper, everybody, everybody decides, of course, this is finite. Humans keep having children, much to their consternation. And what's going to be? So he said, what's going to be is it'll get cheaper. So they uh, put a wager, probably not a lot of money. These are professors, set salary. But the point was, this is written up and this is a big deal. I could have saved money and told them the answer, but they're going to figure it out themselves. Ehrlich thought like a biologist who did not seem particularly interested in economics. In 1971, for example, Ehrlich and the other Hever, who are all going to be wrong, wrote that as a population of organisms grow in a finite environment, sooner or later it will encounter a resource limit. This phenomenon is described by ecologists as reaching the carrying capacity of the environment, which means either they don't know or they know Hashem said apostle keep growing and you'll have everything you need and they would prefer to ignore that or not know it in the first place and they said this is pushed in science so they claimed applies to bacteria on a culture dish which it certainly does the culture dish picture a bowl of cereal bacteria needs to eat and if you don't put more food in it's going to die but that's because it's sitting here alone on a dish on a table Human beings are not supposed to be alone. They're supposed to be working with each other to develop the resources with the siyat they're supposed to have. And they say, no, it's like fruit flies in a jar of agar. That's a picture jam. A buffalo on a prairie. They got every, they covered all the states of the Union. Whatever mushroom you like. But we're running out of buffalo and everything else, and the world's coming to an end. Because they came to the logical, incorrect conclusion, it must also apply to man on this finite planet. And believe it or not, I'll tell you what happened in the bet, but uh, the bet was over in 1990. In 97, Ehrlich was still writing like that because they had a bet, right? No, and 1-1, that's not the $500, whatever they bet. It's proven to me, well, they proved it. Didn't change a thing. Like, don't confuse me with the facts. So all these professors continued to write that the world's coming to an end, as they're still saying today, because they're running out of resources, even though he, he proved it with his brilliant experiment, and we don't need an experiment. Look in the Pusik, it's a fairish Pusik. So he's still writing seven years after the bet was lost by him. Since natural resources are finite, increasing consumption obviously must inevitably lead to depletion and scarcity. Currently, there are very large supplies of many mineral resources, including iron and coal, this is going to start sounding very familiar. But one day become depleted, and that's a double push by him, that they will, I think, gasoline. So when we run out, or scarce, will depend not simply on how much is in the ground, but also the rate at which they can be produced and pulled out of the ground and processed, and the amount societies can afford to pay. And he says, we're running out, it's going to get scarce, it's going to be too expensive, and it's not going to be available, and society's going to fall apart. It'll lead to global depletion, 
declined to a point where worldwide demand can no longer be met economically, and it is already on the horizon. He said this in 1997, and we're still all here, and actually the AC is running. Baruch Hashem. The mic is working, more or less, and um, Baruch Hashem. But if you'd ask him in 97, um, he would predict that uh, far less time is available. As they're saying now, what happened in the actual uh, wager? So Simon, who happens to be right, I'm not giving credit, wasn't coming from the moon necessarily. Maybe it was, I don't know the guy. But he thought like an economist who understood the powers of incentive and the price mechanism to overcome resource shortages. Now, this is the Niflis Aberi. Because Baruch Hu has a Pasuk, and there's a promise in the Pasuk that do this, and you will live happily ever after, and this will bring more peace, prosperity, and more resources to the world. Kosh Baruch Hu, for the Yom and even for Klai still has to do Hishtaglis. So what we call a natural event is an ace, but Hashem couches it in natural events, and even sends an economist like uh, Simon to explain to you why it's going to happen. The danger over here, as he explained it very well, and it makes a lot of sense, the danger is, again, I don't know if he's a maimon or not, the danger is you could say, these guys are wrong, I'm correct, and and we have, don't panic, we have plenty of resources, and it's all up to our brilliance to develop it. That's dangerous also. It was done by Miguel Bovo and many societies since then. So I'm not taking sides that he's a tzaddik, showing you that here they're having an intellectual debate, and these are professors in the best universities, and the other side can't and won't back down, because then it will force them to recognize that the world's not coming to an end, and maybe they actually might start thinking there's a Barry Elam who gave us the brains and the ability to actually do this and survive, but they don't want to come to that conclusion. So there's a way out. I'm not looking to give them aces. You can hold like Simon and just hold that we're so brilliant that we're going to fix it all. That's not a great option either, but they're not even close to that yet. So he explains very simply, instead of the quantity of resources, he agrees. Of course, resources can run out. He looked at the price of resources, so he said, I'm going to prove to you that your concern doesn't exist, and we're going to look at it for a decade, and the human creativity that higher prices awaken, which means, picture at the beginning of the decade, and they get scarcer and scarcer, and the price starts going up, which is what happens by commodities every day. And he agrees with them. It's going to get to a point where it really looks like it's getting too expensive, and it's not sustainable. What happens then? So they argue the world comes to an end. And he said, that's ridiculous. Look at history. We say that's ridiculous because Hashem said not so. That's the real answer. How did Hashem send the Yeshua? The answer is, we know that Hashem will help us do our Avedis Hashem, whether it's 613 mitzvahs or Zion mitzvahs, and keep the world going as long as Hashem wants it to go. How is it going to be done? Happens to be, economically, what he's about to explain makes a lot of sense. When it hits that price that is now becoming too expensive, he saw resource scarcity as a temporary challenge that could be resolved through greater efficiency. That's an interesting thing to try out. Increased supply, development of substitutes, and so on. And we do this every single day. Every single day. Including gasoline, which, if you're around by OPEX embargo, and uh, I was barely around, but I remember I got up for yeshiva. It was very dark out, if you remember that skufa. And they were scaring the whole world, and they were holding the whole world hostage. Uh, you're going to run out. You know what? They finally figured out, Simon and friends, that this is ridiculous, and why don't we just figure out some alternatives? Which they did. Same way they solved the food shortage and everything else. Why don't we just use our head and proper way is Davin for Siat Shmaya, and if they're not from, we need the Siat Shmaya. so we need gasoline, we need electricity, we need the metals, we need food. So just for the Amanifcha, just for the Sadiqim, Hashem will have them build a house, as the Rambam says. Scarcity gets converted to abundance through the price system. The price system functions as long as the economy is based on property rights rule of law. You've got to have law and order, freedom of exchange, and people actually work together on projects. In relatively free economies, therefore, resources do not get depleted in the way that Ehrlich feared they would. In fact, resources tend to become more abundant. 
And they thought that was ridiculous. He says, I'll make a bet. Take five medals, and I insist the price will go down. They said that's the most ludicrous thing they ever heard of. Gets more and more scarce. Of course it's going to go up. Simon won his bet with Ehrlich when the real inflation-adjusted price of the bundle of five medals fell. Are you ready for this? A decade fell by 36%. Not surprising to us, but you think after this there wouldn't be anybody left fear-mongering, but it only got worse, so they must have forgotten about this experiment and a thousand other riots. We don't have to remember the experiment, we just got to remember the Psukim and Chalvis Lavovus and Olinyani Bitachan and Amunah. He won the bet and Fast forward, I'm just, I just picked a few examples, but it's very fascinating to see Nifla Berry, where it looks like it's, we're running out. And we have this in daily life. It looks like we're at the, you know, the, another bill comes in the mail, and like I just paid the last one. And what's going to be? This is Yanni Bitachan, that people struggle with on a daily, daily basis. But humanity, certainly people running the systems, Without a kosh baruchu, it's a very frightening lifestyle, and it's paralyzing. They really can't get anything done. When they can't get anything done, they're obstructing progress. If you destroy all of GMO, I'm sure some of it is better than others, but if you destroy the whole thing, you will basically ensure that your prophecy is correct, because Rahmal is not going to run out of food. Hashem is not going to let them do it. Remember, I was sitting on a plane trying to mind my own business, which never works, uh, a short flight from here to Chicago many years ago, sitting next to a kid in college, like 18, 19 years old, and uh, New York to Chicago, okay, not everybody in the plane has to be Jewish, even though it's New York to Chicago. Sheriff's Matthias, it's like three minutes into the flight, we'd barely taken off. He turns to me, says, are you a real rabbi? I was going to tell him here, there are a lot of fake ones, but I didn't want to get into that. <laughs> so, um, because he's like part of that group, and not yet from, but nice kid, and we want to be a car of him. So uh, I said, uh, I said, yeah, we, uh, we deal with some of, he obviously wanted to talk. So he said, uh, do you mind if I ask you to have some uh, deep-rooted uh, philosophical questions I've been working on in college? That's already a breath of fresh air. This story was like 30 years ago. Um, that's a problem now because halavai, they should come with deep-rooted philosophical problems. That's an issue in Kir Bechlal. And uh, I said, uh, go ahead. I said, uh, why don't you tell me uh, what keeps you up at night? Like, what's, give me the top two. We only have an hour. So I knew it was coming. That's why I phrased it like that. And I knew that either number one or number two is going to be the world's coming to an end. Global warming wasn't in then, but running out of food and resources was starting. Or, go back a little further, that the world has enough atom bombs to destroy itself 50 times over, and what are we doing about it? So, of course, the atom bomb took the first lot. And he said, uh, Rabbi, I'm very nervous. What's going to be? So I turned to him and I said, this might surprise you. I also stay up at night tossing and turning, worrying about a lot of things. So he said, yeah, I mean, is he also worried about this? I said, well, not exactly this. As a matter of fact, the list of first 500 things I worry about, this wouldn't even make it to 505. He looked at me like I had two heads. He said, Rabbi, you're not worried about this? Don't you know they have enough of an arsenal to blow up the world for I said, that's exactly why I'm not worried about it, because anybody with a button on the table that could blow up the world a thousand times is not going to be anywhere near that button because the Kosh is running the world. He never heard of that before. Kosh Baruch, he heard of God. God runs the world still? Even in our modern times? So I said, we only have an hour, so if you want to look at your list, you can probably cross off most of the things on the list now that you know that you said he never heard such a concept. He said, that's fascinating. He says, you must sleep well. I said, actually, I don't, but not because of this. <laughs> because there are problems that we deal with that we have to actually solve, and it's up to us, and it's within our Nekudas the Bechira. But I don't worry. He spent the next 45 minutes trying to get out of me. He said, Rabbi, tell me, you don't worry, not even the little bombs? Like, anything? I said, I don't give him a second thought. So he said, well, don't you, they're, they're having talks with the Russians, they're going to get rid of some of them. 
I'm thinking to myself, kid, you have a lot to learn. They're getting rid of some of them. They're saying they're getting rid of some of them. So what difference does it make if you could blow up the world 50 times or 100 times? He said, well, at least we're doing something. I said, okay, I have other things to do. I'm not saying they shouldn't talk. It's better to be talking than not talking as in world powers. But that's the same thing as running out of medals. Case number two, 2018. We're getting closer. A team of 21 Japanese scientists discovered a 16 million ton patch of mineral-rich deep-sea mud. This mud's very valuable. Near Minami Tori Island, which is only 790 miles off the coast of Japan. How they found it? A lot of water around Japan. They found it because they're always exploring, because the smart people know that whatever we're running out of, there's probably a lot more of it. We just didn't find it yet, which is clever thinking. So they're 790 miles off the coast of Japan, and they find a patch of 16 million tons of rare earth elements that they desperately need for many of the projects and building things, including, this should calm everybody down, 780 years worth of yttrium. Nobody here any heard, ever heard of any of these because they're rare, at least they thought they were. 620 years worth of euphorium. Sounds like a happy chemical. 420 years worth of terbium. Almost like they're making these names up. But these are very expensive, rare elements that they were really nervous about running out of. And it goes on and on. And the scientists said that these things that they found has the potential to supply these materials on a semi-infinite basis to the world. It turns out that rare earths may not be so rare after all. Brilliant conclusion. The answer is yes. Hashem is running the world, and they're rare, but when it comes to a point in time where you desperately need them and there's nothing left, Hashem will send a ship even 790 miles off the coast, and you'll find it. So calm down. The last one, there are a hundred of these, but it, it's very inspiring for us, not surprising. Hashem is running the world, and just has basic bitachon, it will get done. Israel, this fellow who's writing this is a conservative, as you imagined, and a guy, and this is one of his top five examples. The next one, I've seen, you've seen, we all know about this. This is dangerous, particularly because it involves Jews. And the quick reaction of a secular Jew, not yet from, and it's Israel, is that we, the scientists of Ben Gurion University, solved the problem. So it's Israel, as it says in Chumash 20 times, has, by design, a constant water shortage, or potential water shortage. They have a lot of tefillahs, in case you haven't noticed about rain. Rain represents Panosa, but Israel is actually about rain. And I've been to Israel, lived there for a time. As growing up, it was always about like the Canaver, it's lower, it's higher, and like we need water. That's a serious thing, so that's why we daven for it. The water is getting very, very low last uh, couple of decades. And part of it was the fact that we were davening, but besides the water supply of the growing Baruch Hashem Ken Yerbu population, we also had cousins in the area who were stealing half of it. So that didn't help too much. And they started putting their mind to work to figure out, uh, can we get water from another source? So somebody smart said, if you look just westward, like the whole coast, you got the Mediterranean, there's a lot of water there. Unlimited supply. Niflis Aberi. Shem created the oceans. Okay? Can't drink salt water. Said you can if you have a very expensive cutting edge desalinization system, which the Israelis invented. And now exported to Africa and all the other places. Now the danger over here, which they're saying already is not danger, is you see, Mamish cut and paste Rahmallah from a medrash by Dor Hamabal. The Medrash. They said we don't really need Hashem. We're so wealthy and powerful, even though Hashem gave him all that money, all that health. The only thing we needed Hashem for is rain. We don't need that. We got underground water sources, the Medrash. So the danger is that we solved that, and now we're completely independent. That's what a Kaifer will say. A Maimon will say, stop panicking, keep davening. If you daven well enough, Hashem will put the Chachma in the mind of a scientist 
to start bringing water from the coast. And that's what happened. So the complete kaifrim that say the world's coming to an end and the Middle East, uh, there are people who said, it's, it's you know, a laugh or cry. They said, you know, if it's the Holy Land, why did God make it that there's so precious little water supply? Did you ever think of that, Shailu? There's every other possible humish. you got a daven, a mutter, part of Kriya Shema. The answer is, Badafka. So you should always have to daven for water. So the trick now is to make sure to daven that the metals keep on being supplied so they can run the desalinization plants. But it's all the same, Yad Hashem, solving the issue. 55% of the water supply now in Israel is being supplied by the Mediterranean, created by the Kosh Baruch Hu, brought to us by the Bariyelim. And he makes note of the fact that water now is twice as cheap as the average water bill they pay in Los Angeles even though I think Los Angeles is near a large body of water also. But apparently, Eretz Yisrael needed a little bit of breathing room over here, so Kosh Baruch Hu sent a big gift. The fourth example, which he says later on, is even more recent. Well, this is contemporary. Gasoline, and they're running out of it, and it's so expensive, and what's going to be? And from one day to the next, they found billions and billions of cubic feet of natural gas. In Eretz Yisrael, remember the Sugya Gittin, Rabbi Huda holds, you know, got a parallel line going. So point that be the Zichar Eretz Yisrael, even not like Rabbi Huda, it's close enough to Eretz Yisrael. And Hashem put it there, it's just a question like hugger, open up your eyes. So you're not Zichar to that unless you have Schusim. And when you have the Schusim, even if you don't have the Schusim, you're going to become a big Rappikurus because you're going to claim you're the scientist who solved the world's water shortage. But there are enough tzaddikim who need water and can't overpay. And that's the answer to all the fear-mongering and all the fear that's going on. Just look at the Pesukim, look at the Tereshba Pet, and look at the mandate. No, the answer is not have less kids or no kids. The answer is not surrender. The answer is not walk around and panic. The answer is to walk around with Simcha and Yishev Adas and look at history. These are wonderful riots. Not only does Hashem take care of everybody as an individual, Hashem is taking care of the human race at a time when they keep saying, despite all the proofs, that nothing is sustainable and everything is chance and everything is so if we don't drastically change things and the people talking about the change don't have a clue how to do it, which is why they're suggesting to start spraying a lot. And next year it'll be a different idea. Example number two, we just have a few minutes left. On a personal level, people who don't worry about world supplies, about hunger, about all the other horrible things they're predicting is going on around the world. People day to day have their challenges, most of it, and been on the Javeros around COVID issues, really. If you could really break it down. It's like, who did do me a favor, who smiled, who talked to me, who's my best friend, who's not. It's about very human, and everybody has to deal with it. So I want to share with you one other, since we're in the Far East already, finding rare mud. Uh, they also have some universities in the Far East and some intelligent people. I thought this was godless, of course. They didn't do it to explain this particular Musser and Ashkafa. But, very quickly, when two male mice meet in a confined space, you probably never thought, what does happen with two male mice meeting in a confined place? Well, I hope you haven't witnessed this or been dealing with it. But in the lab, it's all about what mice do and how they think and uh, how they react. Male mice. Ma males are, some of our best friends are uh, males, but they're not here to denigrate, but... They're more combative and they're more about covered issues and fighting and as it has always been historically. When two male mice meet in a confined space, the rules of engagement are clear. The lower ranking mouse must yield. There was a chiddush to me. I didn't know there were ranks among the mice, but quite clearly so as you'll see. When these norms go out the window, say when researchers rig such an encounter to favor the weakling, it sends the higher ranking male into a depression-like spiral. 
That's the conclusion of a new neuroimaging study. They have the technology for this now. They can actually put different things in by genetically modifying some of the proteins in the brain. And actually have the brain light up on the screen. You can see which parts of the brain are reacting uh, to depression, excitement, and they can measure. And they're doing serious studies to help, of course, eventually humans or whales or other such creatures, depending on what their favorites are. That's the conclusion of a new neuroimaging study that reveals how the mouse brain responds to an unexpected loss of social status, which has been shown to be a major risk factor for depressions in humans, which means COVID. And this is very, very common on a daily basis. We, we're not in a good mood, and we can't, I don't know why we can't learn, why we can't do mitzvahs, we can't practice and smile because we feel somebody stepped on our feet and somebody affected our COVID. This is mice and b'chayim, could be 10 times a day. So it happens to mice also, apparently. And the professor explains, groups of mice live in hierarchies, both in the lab and in the wild. In the lab, the highest ranking males form particularly despotic regimes. Not only do they have hierarchies, they have like kings and princes, there's a whole matzah there. One of the more dominant alpha mice, as in olive base, that's why they gave him the top slot, will have privileged access to food and space and all sorts of privileges, which is understood by the other mice, like the peasant mice don't start up, unless it's rigged that they do. So Professor Hu, who's a neuroscientist at a university that you have to go to the university to pronounce, somewhere in China, wanted to know what would happen when the pecking order was upended. She and her colleagues set up a battle of wills designed to avoid any actual fighting or bloodshed. We don't want anybody to get hurt. We just want them to get very depressed and see what happens. Ten times a day over four days, ready for this? I thought this is gewaldic. The researchers put a dominant mouse, they know who the kings are, nose to nose, literally, with a subordinate in a clear narrow tube. Then they blocked the lower ranking rodent's exit, so it couldn't back up. The natural affairs would be, you see the king mouse, you give way, proper cover to Malchus, and you back up, even if you came there first. And they blocked the exit, so he couldn't back up, leaving it no choice but to advance on the superior. At first, the dominant mice resisted the upstarts and held their ground. On the fourth day, they were retreating voluntarily from their opponents after only a few seconds, not knowing the other side was sealed. They don't have such a good memory. But they already, this guy looks familiar. He used to be a peasant. I don't know what's going on over here, but this is a severe lack of cover. But they got the press. They just started walking away. In doing so, the mouse kings also fell on social status because apparently there's a lot of lush and horror and social media going on in the mice colony, so all the other mice found out that this guy lost a duel with some lowlife. And um, they lost the high-ranking perks, including VIP access to a warm nest in the corner. As the researchers threw the rodent social order into upheaval, the once-dominant mice began to exhibit symptoms of mouse depression. Their cravings for sugar dwindled, and a widely used test of rodent despair in which scientists dropped mice in a tank of water to measure how long they will stay afloat. They gave up paddling much sooner. So this is important, hopefully, to be used to help humans, because they're seeing which parts of the brains are lighting up. We don't have time for the rest of the report. But they're showing that a simple thing like who cares who goes in the tube first and who goes cover to who the king mouse stopped eating stopped paddling to survive all because some upstart stepped on his feet which you say is very childish that's like behooves a mouse but we're better than that except we're not and we're trying to be mouse is not high of mitzvah or musa seder but we are and she says at the end of a very long report, she says, by the way, they're working on LHB, which is a part of the brain with a certain uh, disappointment center and how to deal with disappointment and developing drugs for this. So putting the drugs aside, she mentions one potentially helpful takeaway for humans, try not to get too used to winning all the time. I think that's a good sage piece of advice, no? Don't get so uppity on yourself, which means, what I'll have to Chazal say, don't become a Balgaiv in the first place. Don't expect too much. If you don't expect too much, then you won't get insulted and it won't affect your day-to-day -day happiness and avoid Hashem. Try to get too used to winning all the time. After all, the higher your expectations, the harder you can fall. So very bikits and imis, because we're out of time already, based on the first Makaris we had, Taisis Yantiv and others, 
When it comes to Gashmias and COVID and all the things that are just here to hold body and soul together and help us function as physical human beings, don't look for more than you need. Don't ask for more than you need. Be happy with what you have and do the minimal shtablis to make sure it's here and Hashem will guarantee it. As we see here, that's not that difficult. It's always a question of how much, how much more. Of course, you want to do, Stalker has said, want to do more things. You can do a lot of things with money. But often the covet aspect seeps in. So when it comes to Gashmias, you'll be a lot happier physically on earth. And Olam Hazem, I'm talking about if you just become a bigger onov, because then you won't have all sorts of conflicts and self-doubt and all sorts of uh, fights with people because you're not expecting much. The guy didn't say it with a full smile. The guy went ahead of your line. So what? So if you're a mouse, it's understandable. If you're a human, it's less. And if you're from, it's even less. When it comes to Ruchnius, you're allowed to, supposed to ask for the world and keep raising the bar and ask with Rachamim, more Torah and more understanding and more Bitochen. And that's unlimited. And that's why Chazal say, Kin is a horrible midah. Kin is all about covet. But every midah is created for something good. And Kin is saved in type of Chachma. Use the Kin. Use it to say, hey, this guy's stepping on my toes. He just slugged out my hope shot in Taisis. Good. So why don't you go back and learn the Taisis well? And you'll be able to either answer him or admit it, but you'll be friends after fighting it out, and you'll both grow. But don't worry about who's going ahead in the tube and who's going out the door first and who's giving who covered. So that's just a distraction. We got through 50% of it. Mitz Hashem, uh, we'll see you hopefully uh, after the Gulish Lame on Thanksgiving. If we have Thanksgiving then. Thanksgiving and the rest of the calendar is in the book. I'm Levodad. You can see Jay. I go through the calendar in the fourth paragraph, but you've got to go through the Sukkot first, the first 200 pages. Aslochem.